Well, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, we're going to look mainly at, at the very last verse of the book. It's one of the most common, uh, commonly used benedictions, at least by me, in our services. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. We're going to read verses 11 to 14 for the sake of a little bit of context. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. 2 Corinthians uh, verse, chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. Give ear to the word of God. Paul writes, finally, brothers, rejoice, uh, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You may be seated. Well, man does not uh, live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's uh, let's pray and ask him to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that in it we especially are, are you have revealed there uh, yourself to us. You have revealed the way of life uh, and forgiveness and salvation through faith in Christ, your son. You've revealed how you would have us to live and even to grow in grace and so we ask once again that you might be pleased to fill us with your Holy Spirit today, to teach us your word, be with me as I speak, and be with all who hear, that we might uh, rightly uh, be, be filled with your spirit in such a way that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, I mentioned earlier in the service that today among the churches that observe the liturgical calendar, so-called, that today is uh, Trinity Sunday, and that is the Sunday after Pentecost. Uh, and, you know, we, these, these kinds of things can be a subject of disagreement and bad blood sometimes, even in the church. Um, we don't view, particularly I don't view these days as additional holy days. Uh, that honor is reserved for the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day alone. Uh, but I do think that observing these particular days in the church calendar uh, on the Lord's Day is a good way to ensure that we give, at least in some ways, give due attention to a number of, of fundamental events and truths of the Christian faith that we might not otherwise do. You know, we might, if we didn't have Pentecost Sunday to think about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, we might never give it much thought. If we didn't have Ascension Sunday, although hopefully this isn't the case, we might not think of, as much as we should, the ascension of Christ to God's right hand. And I think the same in some ways can be true of, of the Trinity you know, if you've been a Christian for a long time, some of you were raised in the church, you've been raised in the Reformed faith, uh, you have known of the Trinity maybe your whole life, as far as back as you can remember, uh, and yet how many of us can actually articulate properly uh, the right way to articulate and express the, the truth of the Trinity? Um, again, getting back to the calendar, you think of the big two, at least when I was a kid, it was Christmas and Easter. Um, and what are you reminded of by those dates on the calendar? Uh, the incarnation of Christ, his birth, his crucifixion, his resurrection. We typically observe Ascension Sunday and Pentecost Sunday as well for what is commemorated on those Sundays. Uh, we may not think so, but what, what we celebrate on those Sundays is every bit as important uh, to your salvation and mine as the previous two. If Christ had, had died and risen again and the Holy Spirit was never given, uh, no one would ever come to faith. We saw last week that we were dead in sins unless Christ makes us alive by his Holy Spirit. 
And so these things that we're looking at on days such as Ascension Sunday, Pentecost, and even Trinity Sunday, they are every bit as important to our salvation, to the spread of the gospel, and the growth of the kingdom of Christ as our Christmas and Easter and what those things represent. I think it doesn't take much to say that you'd be, you would be hard-pressed to find a more important, a more essential truth of the Christian faith than the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. The Christian faith is a thoroughly Trinitarian faith. Without the truth of the triune God, there is no such thing as Christianity and there's no gospel. This isn't some side, you know, doctrine on the side of things that doesn't affect anything. How important is the true doctrine of the Trinity? Scottish Puritan Thomas Boston writes this. Uh, he, he goes as far as to say that it is, quote, a fundamental article, the belief whereof is necessary to salvation. In other words, this isn't a doctrine that you can pick and choose and reject or take at your leisure. He says the belief of it is necessary to salvation. And why does he say that? He lists a bunch of passages. One of them is 1 John 2, verse 23, which says, uh, No one who denies the Son has the Father. If you deny the Son, you don't have God the Father either. If you deny Christ by rejecting his true divinity or his true humanity in some way, then what are you doing? You are, you are believing in a Christ of your own imagination. You are, you are believing in a Christ that, that is not the real Christ. And if that's the case, then you don't know the Lord. In saying that a belief in the biblical doctrine of the Trinity is necessary unto salvation, what is he doing? He's really echoing, this might be a less familiar creed, but it should be one that we think about, He's echoing the same teaching of, of what is found in what is called the Athanasian Creed, which was written sometime in the 5th century A.D. Uh, it was not actually written by Athanasius, but its, it's uh, teaching is such that it, it bears his name. And what is that creed? I encourage you to look it up. Uh, you, if you have the Internet or if you have a book that might have it in it, it's uh, well worth your time to read. Uh, it is maybe the most thorough early statement and defense of both the doctrine of the Trinity as well as the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ that you will find in the early church. And the Athanasian Creed opens with these words. It says, this is where it starts, whosoever will be saved, that should get your attention. And it says that phrase four times in the Creed. But it starts off right out of the, out of the chute. Whosoever will be saved before all things. Here's number one. Before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic, that's small c Catholic, that he hold the Catholic faith, which faith except every one do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance, for there is one person of the Father another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. There's no, no, uh, no soft way of, of putting it in that, in that creed. There is no such thing as being a Christian and rejecting the Trinity. There's no salvation except by the triune God of Scripture. And no saving faith except that which is in the triune God. 
Boston goes on to say this. The mystery of the Trinity is so interwoven with the whole of religion that there can neither be any true faith, right worship, or obedience without it. To undo the doctrine of the Trinity or to reject it is to undo and do away with, uh, at least in one's personal self, the Christian faith altogether. It's a totally different religion altogether if you reject the Trinity. Not only are the ancient ecumenical creeds like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and others uh, explicitly Trinitarian in both their content and structure. You remember the, the creed we just read this morning? How is it outlined? Around the Trinity, I believe in God the Father Almighty, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's the outline of, of those creeds. So it's not just the creeds, but the, the scriptures themselves. The Bible itself is also Trinitarian as well, and especially the New Testament. Benjamin Warfield writes the following. He says, It is not in a text here and there that the New Testament bears its testimony to the doctrine of the Trinity. The book is Trinitarian to the core. It's everywhere, especially in the New Testament. All its teaching is built on the assumption of the Trinity, and its allusions to the Trinity are frequent, cursory, easy, and confident. In other words, the Trinity is found all through your New Testament. You know, if, maybe you, if someone were to ask you, you know, pick, find me a text about the Trinity. You might think of like the one we're, we're looking at this morning, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. But according to Warfield, and I think he's right, it's really everywhere if you have the eyes to see it. If you understand what, what, what the Bible teaches you about Christ and about the Holy Spirit, it is all throughout and even sub, built upon the supposition of the Trinity. So this morning we're going to look at one of the most well-known passages of, of Scripture that explicitly bears testimony to the doctrine of the Trinity, assuming it and stating it in a concise and cursory manner. And in doing so, I hope to do at least three things this morning, at least briefly. We can't possibly say everything that could be said. I can't possibly in one sermon say everything that might be needful to be said, but hopefully this will be at least a beginning. We're going to at least do these three things, Lord willing. We're going to state or briefly define the doctrine. It's always good to be able to articulate it properly. We're going to define the doctrine, we're going to defend the doctrine, and then we're going to see how Paul applies the doctrine in our text. So the first thing we should do, as always in most things, is define our terms. What do you and I mean when we speak of the Trinity? It is to say that there is only one true and living God, and that one true and living God exists eternally in three persons. One God in three persons, not three gods, one God, but three persons the Shorter Catechism states it in a very concise and helpful way. Question 6 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, How many persons are there in the Godhead? It says, There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And here it is. And these three are one God, the same in substance. It's the same phrase you, you said in the uh, Nicene Creed. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. There is no uh, ontological hierarchy in, in the Trinity. The Son is not somehow lesser than the Father, and the Spirit is not somehow lesser than God the Father or God the Son. I would hardly recommend to you that you commit, uh, if, you're, if you're apt to do that, that you memorize question six. Question and answer six, uh, it's a good way to be, uh, to, to be sure of how to articulate these things 
carefully. All true Christians believe the Trinity, but not all true Christians are able to clearly articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. And so that question, I think, will help us to do just that. So there's only one true and living God, and yet there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three persons are one God, not three. And as it says there, they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, there's a point, as there are in many things in the Christian faith, especially when you talk about God, there is a point in which this doctrine is a mystery. It is incomprehensible uh, to our finite minds, isn't it? There are, there are things which are knowable about God because God has revealed these things about himself, and yet they are incomprehensible about God. And that, that should not be a surprise or an offense to anyone who's a Christian. To say that God as God is incomprehensible means, uh, in a lot of ways, it means there's a God and you're not him. Right? It means that God is infinite, and by definition, no one in this room is infinite. And what does that mean? It means there are certain limitations uh, based uh, placed upon us, and especially even regarding our knowledge of God, and that God, we can articulate things. We can say, you know, the, the Shorter Catechism has a definition of God. What is God, right? And it says God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all that he is. Well, you can use words like infinite. You can use words like eternal, and we can kind of give a definition for them. But do you, is it really possible for you as a finite human being to actually grasp infinity? I would say it is not possible. You, you know what it means. We all kind of know what it means. But can you comprehend infinity? No. And God is infinite in all that he is. Like it's what we sang holy, holy, holy. In fact, that song mentions the Trinity. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. The reason we picked the song, besides the fact that we like it, right? Um, we say God is holy, holy, holy. In fact, it's been said many times that the holiness of God is the only attribute of God or the only perfection, maybe you like to use that word instead, of God, that the scripture uses in a threefold manner like that. The Bible never says God is love, love, love. Sounds like a song. Uh, it, it says God is holy, holy, holy. And why does, it, why does the Bible say that? Maybe there's an allusion to the Trinity in there. I don't know uh, for sure. But one thing it's meant to do is emphasize God's holiness. Because of all God's attributes, that's the one that gets the short shrift. That's the one that we think the least of and take the most casually. We like to think of God being love, but his holiness makes us nervous in some ways. Well, it's one thing to say it three times, but to say that God is infinitely holy, that, that is a game changer. and that He's infinite in all of his perfections. Uh, and so these things, these attributes of God, and especially the Trinity, is something that is incomprehensible to us because we are finite and God himself is, is infinite. He's infinitely beyond our finite ability to fully comprehend and understand. Now, many find this to be a stumbling block because they place their own power or faculty of reason even above the scriptures themselves. This has been a problem throughout church history. People have, uh, down through the ages have have hit upon this doctrine, and it's like the rock of offense. They hit it, and they can't, they can't accept it. They, they, they put their own reason, their own intellect, above even the Scripture. They say, if I can't comprehend this, it can't be true. If I can't fully comprehend this, how can it be true? And they've argued against it and rejected it in many ways. And what, what do they do when that happens? 
If you put your own reason, your own mind and intellect above even the revelation of God in Scripture, what you're doing is you're making your own reason the de facto authority and the measure of all things. In a lot of ways, you've put yourself, unwittingly I hope, in the place of God. You say, I'm the measure, I'm the, I'm the, the, the rule of all things instead of God himself. And many refuse to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity for this very reason, that they will not submit their minds to the revelation of God in the scriptures. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 25, talking about the Trinity, it says, basically, why do we speak of Father, Son, and Spirit? Right? In other words, why do we speak of a Trinity in the Godhead? And the answer is, is very simple. It says, because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. In other words, because God says so. And that, that should answer a lot of our questions in many ways about many things. There are many things besides just the Trinity. Rob mentioned one of them this morning in his, in his talk before leading us in prayer. There are many things that the natural man finds offensive about what God has revealed in his word. So why do we hold to them? When it offends so many, why do we hold to them? Why do we hold them forth? Why do we stick to them? The same answer should be given because God has revealed that in his word. Period. We are not God. He is, and he is the one who calls the shots. It's not without reason that many of what we call the nominally Christian cults always seem to find themselves butting up against this very doctrine as well as others. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, they reject the truth of the Trinity out of hand and end up with a gross polytheism of, of some kind. They really worship more than one God whether they tell you that or not. And in doing so, they may call themselves witnesses, but they are not witnesses of the true God or of the truth of God. They are witnessing to a false God. And why do I say that? They hold, they believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, as I mentioned earlier, is a God with a small g. In other words, he's sort of God. Is there such a thing as sort of God? Is there something that you can think of that makes any sense to say there's something that's almost infinite. Is there an almost infinite? You're either infinite or you're not. And there's a vast difference between those two things. Well, they, they hold that Jesus Christ was a created being, that there was a time when the sun was not. They reject the true divinity of Christ. And so in, in doing that, they even reject his incarnation because they hold to a doctrine of incarnation of someone that wasn't God from all eternity. They worship and teach a Christ of their own imagination. Why does it matter? Why can't we, uh, as the, the venerable theologian Rodney King once said, why can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just get along with the cults? Uh, if Christ is not the God-man, then we are still in our sins. That's why it matters. If Jesus Christ is not truly God and truly man, we are still in our sins and of most people to be pitied. Why do I say that? The debt of our sin before a holy God is an infinite one. In a sense, there are some sins that are more heinous than others. We do hold to that. But in another sense, there's no such thing as a small sin. We think there are because we, we tend to look, at, look around and measure them against other things and other people. There's no such thing as a small sin against an infinitely holy God. And so the debt of our sins was infinite and can only be paid for in full by somebody who was truly God 
and truly man. One who is both God and man, infinite according to his divine nature, and truly human according to his human nature, and that Christ alone is. Likewise, the Mormons are also a cult and also gross polytheists at that. Uh, Not only do they reject the true biblical doctrine of the Trinity, but they also do not believe that there's only one true and living God. In fact, you may be surprised to know uh, they believe one day their adherents will one day become as gods themselves. One of their creedal statements, so to speak, is as God now is, uh, as I, I don't I wasn't taught the Mormon faith, don't get me wrong, but it's something along the lines of as we now are, God once was, and as God now is, we too one day shall be. That's gross polytheism. That's blasphemy is what that is. How many gods are there going to be according to the Mormon cult? How many Mormons are there? I don't, I don't know, but that's a lot. And that's a lot harder to understand than three and one in some ways as that. They believe they will be one day as gods themselves, and I think that's echoing. I don't think it's a stretch to say that's echoing the, the lie of the serpent in the garden when he tempted Eve. What did he tell her? Not only did he say, you will not surely die, but he said, he knows that the day you eat of it, you'll be like God. I guess you could say the Mormons go one step further, don't they? You won't just be like him. You'll, you'll be him. You'll be just like God. In the wisdom of God, he has, in a sense, provided us with a litmus test of sorts in some regard in the truth of the Trinity by rejecting it. Many of the cults out themselves. Many of the cults show their true colors in rejecting the truth of the Trinity. They show themselves to not be Christians at all, but synagogues of Satan. And so the doctrine of the true doctrine of the Trinity can protect us, at least in some regard, against the cults and heretics of many kinds in our day. It's not the only thing that protects us, but it is one thing that they all seem to, to, to a man, they all seem to, to reject and, and turn over. Well, how about the doctrine of the Trinity defended? Where is the doctrine of the Trinity taught in Scripture? How, how are you able to, as a Christian, to defend it against those who were rejected or speak against it? Now, that would make for a pretty long sermon. We can't possibly go into all the things we could go into, but we'll address at least a few points, I think, here this morning. Lord willing, the first is it should be noting at least we should note at least in passing that in our text, notice how the Apostle Paul says it. He seems to feel no need to defend or to prove it at all. He simply states it as part of his prayer for the church at Corinth. He says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The way he says it puts them all on par with each other, doesn't it? There's no, there's no such recognition or, or statement in such a way that would give you any hint of an idea that there's God and then there's Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He puts them on par, on a level, equal in power and majesty and glory. And if they aren't equal to God the Father in power and majesty and glory, it would be blasphemous for him to say what he says. And yet Paul just lays it out just like that, as if everybody should know this and accept it, because it's simply true. Paul could not conceive of any Christianity without the truth of the triune God. He knew of no salvation or blessing apart from the triune God. And this is reflected even in his prayer and benediction at the end of this this letter. As for helpful proof of the doctrine of the Trinity, Warfield again uh, writes the following. He's always very helpful. He says this. The fundamental proof that God is a trinity 
is supplied thus by the fundamental revelation of the Trinity. In fact, that is to say, in the incarnation of God the Son and the outpouring of God the Holy Spirit, in a word, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are the fundamental proof of the doctrine of the Trinity. He goes on to summarize this as follows. He says, when we have said this, we have said in effect that the whole mass of the New Testament is evidence for the Trinity. For the New Testament is saturated with evidence of the deity of Christ and the divine personality of the Holy Spirit. And so when you're looking for proof texts and things of the doctrine of the Trinity, don't just look for ones that mention all three like our text, although that's a good, a good place to start. Warfield is reminding us every time the Bible talks about the true deity of Christ, it's affirming the Trinity. Every time the Bible affirms the true divinity of the Holy Spirit, the Bible is telling us of the Trinity. And where do you find that? All through the New Testament, to use his words, it's the entire New Testament is saturated with statements such as those. In other words, the biblical proof for the doctrine of the Trinity is not just to be found in texts that mention all three persons, like our text, like the Great Commission in Matthew 28 19, where we are told to, be, to baptize those who, who come to be discipled, to baptize, uh, they're to be baptized what? In the name, not names. It says, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But primarily the place to look is all those, those many texts that teach us clearly about the, the deity of Christ and the divinity of the Holy Spirit. There is no shortage, shortage of such texts. And no matter how many of those texts, like John 1 verse 1, that some of the cults try to change or explain away, uh, more such texts than that <coughs> pop up everywhere throughout the scriptures so that if they try to keep changing them, it's as if the culture stuck playing a theological game of whack-a-mole. They change this verse, that one pops up. They change that one, another one pops up. They have to undo the entire New Testament. I don't think they'll, they'll go that far, but that's as far as they would have to go. They would have to rewrite the entire New Testament to do away with the divinity of Christ and the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Think of John 1, verses 1 through 3, the beginning of the Gospel of John, where it gives us a clear proof of the deity of Christ. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was not anything made that was made. Everything that was created was created through Christ, through the Son of God. Now the Jehovah's Witnesses, they changed that passage quite a bit. They say, in their, tra their, their translation, they say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, small g. And then it says, when, when they talk about all, all things made through him, they say that it says, both there and in Colossians, all other things were made through him. Is that what it says? No. It, it absolutely does not say that uh, at, at all. There can be no doubt that the word there is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does John say about the Son of God, the word, that he was there when? In the beginning. The Son of God had no beginning. He has always been. There has never been a time when the Son of God was not. He was with God, and yet he also was God. 
He's with God and he's also God. And when it says was God, that is not in the Greek, that is not a past tense. He's not saying he used to be God, then he became incarnate. It's a, it's a strange uh, way of doing a verb there that we don't really have an equivalent in English. Uh, it's an imperfect tense verb. And what that what that is, it could be translated in a strange way. Uh, instead of saying, uh, we wouldn't write this in English, the word was was God, We would it would be something like this. The word was being God. That's the sense of an imperfect verb. In other words, the whole time he's already been that. There's never been a time when he wasn't God. That's, that's the tense of the verb that John uses here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's no, no better way he could have phrased it to tell us of the eternal divinity of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then all things, not all other things, were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So who made all things in Genesis chapter 1? Not, not a trick question. God spoke and things came to be. Uh, why do you think John calls the Son of God the Word? To show you how the Son of God is in the creation account. He is the Word that God spoke in a sense to create all things. He is the eternal Son of God. He was there at creation. All things are also sustained by the Son of God as well. Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 3. Uh, I don't know how anybody can read this and, and come away thinking Jesus is somehow less than God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, it says, Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. There it is again. He, the son, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, that's Christ, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Does that sound like somebody who's almost God to you? No, and there's no such thing as almost God, uh, to be sure. Those things could not be said of anyone but God, and to say any such thing about somebody who was a created being, and in any way less than God, would be nothing short of blasphemy. What about the Holy Spirit? There are many such passages in your Bible that teach us of his true divine personhood, including our sermon text. There Paul prays that we as believers would enjoy, quote, what? The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I dare say you can't have fellowship with an impersonal force. People act sometimes like the Holy Spirit is like the electricity in the wall socket, that he's just some kind of force emanating from God. Well, Paul prays that we would have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. He says elsewhere not to grieve the Holy Spirit. The, the power in the wall socket can't be grieved. It can't be lied to. In Acts 5, verses 3 to 4, remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and they had sold a property and gave some to the, the apostles to give to those in need, but they lied, right? And so Acts 5, 3 to 4, Peter, it says this, Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to whom? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, the Bible is not a socialist book. Uh, it is not, uh, it's not a communist book. He could have kept all the money. 
You just can't lie and act like you gave something that you didn't give. But he says this. So he says, how has Satan filled your heart with the light of the Holy Spirit? Then he says, you have not lied, verse 4, you have not lied to man but to God. Who is Peter saying the Holy Spirit is? God himself. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and he says, tells them, you have not lied to man but to God. Whom did Ananias and his wife lie to? The Holy Spirit who is God. When you read the creation account in Genesis 1, who was hovering over the waters at the creation in Genesis 1, verse 2? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. These and a multitude of other passages of, of the Bible can be gathered together as proof of the true divinity of Christ, the Son of God, and the true divinity of the Holy Spirit. And so those things are true proofs in and of themselves of the doctrine of the Trinity. Last but not least, how does Paul apply this doctrine uh, of the Trinity? You would, you would hope any doctrine as important as this would have plenty of application, and there is, but how does Paul use it here? He uses it at the very end of the letter to comfort and assure and, and speak a word of blessing or benediction to the Corinthian believers, despite their many sins and shortcomings. You know, you read the book of First Corinthians, you read the book of Second Corinthians, and you get the idea that there's quite a uh, quite a mess that went on in those churches, and yet Paul could give them a blessing and benediction the way that he did. It was probably the last thing they expected to read off the page from Paul. If you read Second Corinthians, they had quite a few problems, quite a few sins and things that Paul addressed in some pretty strict terms. Uh, Paul had some pretty hard things to say to them, even in this very chapter, in chapter 13. In verse 2, he, he warns, sternly warns the unrepentant among them, and calls upon the church there uh, to examine themselves to see if they are truly in the faith. Paul's like, act like Christians, and if you're not going to act like Christians, maybe you need to look in the mirror. That's really what he's saying. Examine yourselves, verse 5, to see whether you are in the faith. Are you a Christian or not? And he expects them to be able to look themselves in the mirror, so to speak, and examine themselves for it. But then in verse 10, he goes further. He says, for this reason, I, you know, here's why I write these things. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my own use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. In other words, I'm saying things in a pretty strong way now because I hope when I come back there in person, I won't have to later. Right. But then he pens this beautiful prayer and benediction at the end of verse 14. And so doing that, he reminds them of their salvation in Christ. After all these difficult, hard things that Paul had to say, he has a word of benediction for them. That word of benediction is about their whole salvation in the triune God. Charles Hodge points out this benediction includes all the benefits of redemption. John Calvin says that the whole of our salvation is contained in this benediction, noting the following, he says, he, that's Paul, he desires for them first the grace of Christ, second the love of God, and third the communion of the Spirit. Just as our redemption and salvation from sin was decreed, accomplished, and applied by the triune God, decreed by God the Father before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, accomplished by the death and resurrection of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, and then applied to us by the Holy Spirit, even so Paul desires for them and for us the continued enjoyment of their salvation. 
in the grace and love of and the fellowship with the triune God of our salvation. The Trinity, the triune God, all three persons of the Godhead were involved in creation and all three are involved in our salvation. And so what does Paul do? Paul prays for more of the same uh, for, for both the Corinthian believers as well as for us. May that be our desire and prayer for each other and for ourselves that we too may have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with us all too. Amen.